Hello and welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Library's podcast. I'm Kate Price-McCarthy here with my co-host Hattie Dulac. Hello Hattie. Hi Kate, I'm so glad to be joining you. Have you been reading anything exciting recently? Well, I have been reading a bit of a classic lately on Borrowbox, uh, one that puts our hot summer into perspective. I'm going to be talking about it a bit more later on in the podcast, so I won't say anything more now. How about you? Oh, that sounds thrilling. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that one. I'm reading a book called Of Women and Salt by Gabriela Garcia. And that is a book about sort of intergenerational family trauma set in Latin America and the States and kind of focuses on a few different women's lives and families across many different periods of history. So it's it's really interesting. I, I think it's it is a really interesting look at that that kind of topic and the way it's written is really lovely so I'd really recommend that one and uh, yeah I'm reading that one on Borrowbox at the moment so it's probably a good time to say thank you to our supporter Borrowbox the free library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet all you need to use it is your library membership number and pin I always like listening to what books you are reading you always seem to have something completely different that I've never heard of while everybody else I know seems to be reading the same thing. <laughs> I need to get involved in more book groups and kind of come into the come into the popular <laughs> book reading group. But yeah, no, I, I don't know how I find these things. So moving on to our brilliant guest author for this episode, Mike Gale, whose new book, The Museum of Ordinary People, seems to be flying off the library shelves. So this is one that I did get recommended by you, Kate, and I looked online to see if they had a, a copy in my local library and I cannot find it anywhere. It's loaned out in almost all Hampshire libraries at the moment, so it's very popular. Well, at least there's always the option to reserve it. And I would recommend you do. It's such a pleasure to read. If you're not aware of Mike already, he recently became the first male writer ever to win Romantic Fiction's top award. But he doesn't just write about kind of hearts and flowers romance and happy ever after. He's also keen to tackle tough and moving topics too. Yeah, I think I read a, an article where he was described as a kind of pioneer of like lad lit and it sounds like he's an author that everyone could read quite quite happily. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose um, I'm trying to think of other people he's been, other writers he's been compared with. Nick Hornby, for instance, although I wouldn't say quite exactly that sort of uh, writer. And Tony Parsons, that kind of writer as well. And as you'll hear from the interview, one of the other things that makes him stand out as a romantic fiction writer is he is a writer of colour too. And uh, as he talks about in the interview, that really puts him in a category of his own. And if, like me, you're keen on getting your hands on a copy of the book, just search our online library catalogue or follow the link in our show notes to see where you can find it. Uh, later on in the episode, we'll be talking to Donna, who works in a few libraries in the southeast of Hampshire, including Ferrum Library and Gosport Discovery Centre. She's going to be telling us about one of her recent reading recommendations. It's a book called The Earth Spinner by Anurada Roy. Not to be confused with the Booker Prize winning author and one of my favourite ever writers, Arundhati Roy. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of God of Small Things, which I think I'm right in saying, Hattie, is one of your top books of all time. Anurada Roy isn't an author I've read before, but she was long-listed for the Booker back in 2015, and her latest, The Earth Spinner, came out last year. 
yeah, you're right about that one, Kate. Uh, the God of Small Things is one of my favourite books ever. But for now, let's turn to Mike Gale and his latest book, The Museum of Ordinary People. And Mike's new book is all about those treasured but valueless objects we keep around us and find so hard to throw away. It's full of hope as well as dealing with the heartbreak of loss. So here's my conversation with Mike where he does a much better job of explaining what it's all about. Mike, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your new book, uh, The Museum of Ordinary People. Many congratulations. I really enjoyed reading it. So can you start off by telling us a bit about the story? So The Museum of Ordinary People is about, it's, it's essential, the central country is Jess. She is a receptionist at a, at a big kind of um, office block and she's a little bit lost. Uh, the previous year she uh, had cleared her mum's house and she's still reading a little bit from from the loss of the mum. And everything, the, the story sort of starts when, after clearing her mum's house, she she's brought some stuff home, and some of some of which has sat in the hallway in the in the the kind of the flat that she shares with her, her boyfriend. And she hasn't done anything with it, and the, her boyfriend's a little bit afraid to say anything about it. And finally, when a, kind of the year anniversary kind of comes, he brings it up and sort of says have you decided what you're going to do with this? And and the particular object is a set of encyclopedias. And these encyclopedias mean a lot to Jess. They have no value in themselves, but they mean a lot to Jess emotionally. But really, the reason why they sat in a bag by the front door is because she just doesn't know what to do with them. And she tries to find a home for them and can't because nobody's interested. They're of no value to them. Um, and not even libraries will take them. And she uh, is just about to get rid of them when uh, a friend of hers tells her, her best friend tells her about a place called the Museum of Ordinary People. And the Museum of Ordinary People is a museum unlike any other. It's not even a proper museum. It's at the back of a, a clearance company in Peckham. And she goes to this place and sees the museum and is absolutely bowled away by what she finds which is lots of items that have been collected together with, with all attached with labels. So some, some of the things have been donated, some of the things have just been found, but all of them have this one thing in common that they all meant something to, something to someone and represented someone who is no longer about or no longer alive. And so uh, she falls in love with this museum and wants to turn it into a proper museum. And really that's the essence of the story. Mm, absolutely I that's love the first that. time I've ever, I've ever actually oh, really? explained it like that <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been wondering because it, it, it's, it's got so many facets that it, it's quite a hard book to kind of get a handle on not not in terms of telling the story but in terms of telling it succinctly because it's actually much more than this um but it's it's hard to say well, if that was your, your first practice run, I think you've done a great job yeah it is lovely the way uh, that does it, it, it reignites these kind of past ambitions and love that uh, Jess has for museums and for the idea of being a curator of a museum. Now, I understand that you tend to start your books with an idea and then kind of work out the best way to explore that idea within a story. So could you tell us a bit more about this initial idea? What was that initial idea and how did the idea come to you? 
it came so a, a friend of mine uh he actually works he, he he and his wife have got this kind of uh vintage furniture shop and so he's always on the lookout for vintage furniture and he was but into it but he wasn't actually at work at the time he was just walking on the street and he saw a skip and you know so he's always i suppose he's always got to kind of got his eye on the, the kind of skip and see what see what's in there and in the skip were, uh, so they were clearing out a house and in the skip were quite clearly bags of things that someone's belongings. So he had a little bit of a rum rummage and he found all these kind of letters and postcards and, and things that had clearly meant to so- something to someone because they, they kind of ranged across a number of years. And so these were something that they valued and kept and yet they'd just been thrown away. And because he'd found them, he, he sort of felt a sense of responsibility towards them. He's like, well, what do you do? He, you know, he was kind of thinking to himself, well, I can't leave them there because that feels wrong. But do I take them home? Because I've got no connection to this person either. And it, it really made me think about that. And the, and the more I kind of told that story to people, the more people came back to me and said that they'd had similar experiences. A, a friend of my wife, they, um, they moved into a new, brand new house and they found when they moved in, they found a, a suitcase in the loft that belonged to um, not the previous owner, but some a previous owner, several going back several generations, just full of their belongings and full of their mementos. And again, they didn't want, know what to do with it because it felt, it felt wrong to put it in a skip, but equally they didn't know what to do with it. And so I, I kind of understood this. I kind of understood the idea that objects can that have no value could, sort of had an importance irrespective just because they'd been touched people's lives and so that was my very beginning um, I wanted to kind of look at that and the, the title came almost immediately because you know when you when you think of museums you always think of the great and the good and you always think of um, you know kings and queens and all, all the important people but you know you, you you know, well, there isn't a, a museum for ordinary people for those things that, that you know, you don't want to throw away, but you, you can't keep anyway. And so that's how the, the idea kind of came. And then I thought about Jess and who she was. I knew that she wanted to have some sort of connection to museums. And it, it just all sort of flourished from there, really, uh, and, and kind of took on a life of its own. Uh, I'm sure anyone reading this book is going to be thinking about what they would donate to the museum. And I reckon personally, I would nominate an old battered rocking horse that used to be in my grandmother's house. My mother used it when she was three. And then I have memories of using it myself when I was little. And it's now sitting on my landing, getting in the way, taking up far too much space. (laughs) But you must have thought yourself, what is there that you would? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, it, it, it's, it's sort of daft things. My parents are, are, are sort of, they're not hoarders, really, but they, they do seem to hang on to things. And I came across um, a pair of Wellington boots. And these wellies must be at least, I mean, I can't remember these wellies not existing. <laughs> so they are at least they, they're coming to half a century old and i just remember they they just seeing them just evoked 
just memories of my childhood, you know, but for some reason, we just had one pair of wellies. And they were, so if anybody had any kind of welly wearing needs, these were, we, we, we just, those were where we went. And, you know, they were used for gardening. They were used for when it was snowing and, you know, you, you need to kind of clear the, the path. And so they were always there. And I just love the fact that they, they, they still exist. And it would be a sad day to kind of see them go after all this time. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird, those things that become symbolic like that. Yeah. Now, as a writer, you are known for tackling tough subjects with, I might say, brilliant storytelling skills. And in fact, you were you were giving an, uh, given an Outstanding Achievement Award last year by the Romantic Novel Awards for just those very strengths. But I have to say, despite knowing all of that, I did find I was completely polaxed at the start of this book, which I really wasn't expecting um, to feel within the first few pages to be so affected by Jess's situation. I, I think it's a position most of us will face at one point, having clear out their family home. And I have to say the kind of straightforward way you wrote about it just dropped me headlong into her experience. And so how do you, on earth do you go about capturing this sort of emotional experience in such a direct way? I'm... Um... <sighs> I think one one of the things that I I, I made my mind up uh, a, a long time ago was that I wasn't going to do uh, I, I wasn't going to write in a way that's flowery. Uh, I don't do descriptions of clouds or descriptions of trees. I, I reason that my readers sort of know what trees and clouds look like, and I can't really embellish that. So I, I like for my characters to sound like real people, and I like for them to talk in a in a in a manner that the reader feels that they are listening to a friend tell a story. And because of that, I think you, you stop thinking about reading, that you're reading a book and you, you start thinking more that you're listening to a friend. And when you do that, I think you kind of immediately connect with a, a situation that the, the people, the characters that find themselves in. And that was really important to me. I think, I, I think there's obviously there's, there's a place for beautiful sentences and lovely creative you know lovely description but I think sometimes that can kind of get in the way of connecting with your reader and making them feel like this is somebody this isn't just a character in a book this is somebody who lives and breathes and could be my next door neighbor could be my best friend could be somebody I work with you know you really connect with their kind of humanity and I, and I think that's something that's very important to me. Mm, no, that definitely came across. Um, I, I also found all the details about what goes into curating a museum really illuminating, you know, finding common themes and telling stories within a museum. And um, so did you have to do much research to get that kind of thing right? I did, actually, because I, I, I didn't really know any, anything about museums. And so there's a, there's a couple of books that I read about, about curating also, there's a, there's a fantastic uh, series on BBC4 about the V&A. So you go into, uh, uh, I think they've, they've done about two series, actually, of it. And it's, it's all about the, the collections in the V&A and how they look after it and the, the various things. So that was really useful. And also, I, I, I've got a, a very close friend who did a museum curation course at university. So I spoke to her uh, quite a bit as well. So that, that kind of gave me um, a little bit of the background of, of just the kind of logistics of running a museum about which I, I knew nothing. 
Mm. No, it was very interesting. And there's a point where Jess talks about what you choose to have in your home becomes almost a museum of your own history and personality, which I thought was a really interesting idea. Uh, and I, I do think that we use our homes as ways of expressing our identities. So was this like an important theme, the way we tell our stories through everyday objects that mean something to us? Absolutely. And uh, the thing is, we don't feel like we're curating. We, we just feel like we're you're buying things that we like. And But, you know, all of these all of these things are choices, you know, from the, the food in the fridge to the pictures on the wall. These are things that we've decided about. And so these objects in themselves tell a little story about what's important to you, what you like, what you don't like. And so, you know, when Jess goes into her mum's home, um, so just just for the, for the listeners, just so they know, we all, while we get the story of the, the Museum of Ordinary People, we also get the story of Jess, how she arrived at her mum's home to clear it. And we, we kind of return to that story throughout the, throughout the main story, sort of weaved in that week that she spends dismantling her mum's home. And so when she approaches different things, you know, everything tells a story, the clothes tell a story, even the, the kind of broken uh, ornament in itself tells a story because I think it's a story about Jess and her best friend and how they knocked it over and glued it back together again, thinking that their, their mum, that her mum hadn't noticed. And so everything tells a story. And so when you do something as as heartbreaking as having to clear a parent's, ho- uh, a parent's home, you are reliving all of those moments that connected to those objects. And you're also thinking about how they came into your life as well, and you know, and, and the person who brought them in and why they brought them in and, and, and what those objects mean. So it, it's, it's a really, it's, it's quite a heartbreaking thing to, to do. And I, and I suppose it's one of those things that when I look at my friends, you know, in, in my kind of, in my thirties, there were few people, you know, there were only a, a very small limited number of people who had had that experience. And then as we've kind of got older, more and more and soon we're getting to the stage where it's not uncommon for uh, people of my generation to be clearing up their, their parents thing so it's, it's almost a rite of passage I suppose and you know you, you feel like once you you kind of get to the age of 40 that you know you're, you're done with rites of passage until of course you you kind of tip over to the point where you parents start to pass away and and you realize that actually there, there are a few more rites of passages um, that, that I left ahead and so it was important to me to kind of detail that. Now there's a few questions that I wanted to ask about about gender and race but please stop me if you feel I'm going over okay. about which. No 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 by all means yeah go for it yeah. And also if you're sick and tired of talking about it but anyway um, now I've, I've read before that if you google black British male romantic fiction writing you'll arrive at Mike Gale because there really is <laughs> That many other writers who fit that description. So I'm quite interested in the perspective that gives you and your readers. Now, it, it's difficult because on the one hand, talking about race and racism is obviously incredibly important and is something you've tackled in your previous book. But on the other hand, it's also great to have a main character who's a woman of colour where race isn't the subject of the book. So is this something yes. that's important to you? Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it, it's, it's something that's always been important to me. I just think, you know, obviously there is a place for discussions about race 
but equally there's um there's there's a place for discussions by people of color about things to, with nothing to do with race and i think it's really important it's you know it's a 360 degree experience and uh white writers and white uh, non-black authors get to write about the whole spectrum of life and sometimes it feels like uh black writers can be well okay this is your piece of the pie that you can write about but the rest is ours and it's, so it's very important to me to actually go actually no I'm, I'm going to claim that whole 360 degrees. So I will write about whatever I want to write and I will stake that claim. And um, I think it's important because I think it's easy to kind of get pigeonholed. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm part of a thing that's been going on where I've been talking to uh, publishers and they, they are desperate to get black writers and, and people of colour to, to be writing about crime fiction romance fiction and it's important to kind of get that message out that you don't have to be pigeonholed you can write about your own experience you can write about fantasy you know sci-fi all the genres are open to you and don't feel that uh, you have to be channeled in one direction and so it's important just the very existence of books like the museum of ordinary people you know if i can just see one person who read it and just go oh right okay this has got a character who's a person of colour and it's not about race and that's great. It's fantastic. So it's, it's, it is important to me, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of guessing that within, I mean, I'm using the word romantic fiction very broadly, it, the default for characters, certainly main characters, is that they are going to be white. And so I, I don't know whether I, would you go as far as it gives you sort of satisfaction to be able to subvert that default? and. To- oh, well, absolutely. I, I mean, for a long time, I didn't, talk about race uh, because I just I was determined not to be pigeonholed and so my leisure girlfriend and Mr Commitment and turning 30 the characters I just talked about the characters and their experiences I didn't really talk about I didn't talk about race and the interesting thing is that that people reading them because I, because I didn't specifically talk about race people would naturally assume that the characters were white and I would say well why would you do that you know, you've seen the, the the cover of my picture on the on the back, and I'm quite clearly black. So, why would you assume that the white? And you just go because you don't say, and you go, well, hang a second, right? Uh, so, in the early days, I used to get compared to uh, Nick Hornby and uh, kind of Bridget Jones and all the rest of it, and you kind of go, well, at what point in a Nick Hornby book, or indeed in Bridget Jones, does does any of the characters say, "Here I am, I'm a white woman." Uh, doing white things they don't they just get on with their lives and it was really important to you know and, and again I, I get people talking to me um especially in the early days just like go oh I didn't realize you were black and I go well I am and I didn't realize you were white either so you know look at us we're both surprised but yes I I, I just it, it, it does give me a great deal of pleasure to kind of just challenge that idea that if it's not stated unless it's stated the character is white I just think well Actually, no. You know, am I making life difficult for you? Yes, probably. But um, it's about making those assumptions. Why, why are we making those assumptions? And, and are those assumptions useful and helpful? And I don't think they are. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, obviously, it's also a little less usual to have a man writing fiction about, well, I, I suppose with the exception of people like Nick Hornby, about feelings and emotions and a bit of romance too, and also to be writing them from a, a woman's perspective. 
did your early career as an agony uncle on a teen magazine <laughs> help prepare you for this? Or maybe you were drawn to that job in the first place because you've always been interested in ordinary people's day-to-day emotional lives. I think the thing is, I've, as, a, as an author, I think it's really important that you've got to be able to write uh, as, as both genders. You've, you've got to be able to do that. It's uh, it's a little bit like being uh, a portrait artist, but secretly you can't do noses, and so you just never draw noses. Um, it's bonkers if you can't write a convincing female character as a as as a as a male, or you can't write a convincing male character as a female. You get what I'm trying to say. Um, then you're in the wrong job. Our job is to talk about people. If you can't talk about people and do a convincing job of it you are in the wrong job. People always think, oh, you know, ask me, oh, it, was it, is it difficult or was it difficult? And is it about getting into a different mindset? And I, I think it's, it's, it's my job. It's my job to observe people. It's my job to create convincing characters. And if I can't do that, then I shouldn't be a writer. Although I did read somewhere that the, your one sticking point, though, was uh, what women might wear. <laughs> and that This is true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not great at, at addressing my female characters. And uh, I, I have been known before now to go to the next catalogue and uh, just say, oh, this person is wearing an asymmetrical top with, uh, with a long gypsy skirt or something like that, just because I, I, I literally have no idea about those things. So, yes, emotionally, I get it. Um, Clothes-wise, I'm, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> No, that is my weakness. But <laughs> I, I do my research. That's the important thing. Exactly. Now, look, we're talking today just after two o'clock in the afternoon, and I understand that's typically the time that you clock off from your daily writing stint. So could you tell us a bit about what your normal writing day for you involves and maybe what you're working on at the moment? Okay. So my I, I tend to start about eight o'clock in the morning. So uh, kids off to school. Dog's been fed normally, uh, so I come up here. Um, this is my office, and I uh, I'll start work. And depending on where I am in in a, in a book, I mean, I'll, I'll always be here between, generally speaking, Monday to Friday. I'm always here from eight until one. And I try, I, I tend to. My target is, uh, and again, I suppose it depends where I am in the, in the kind of in the cycle. If I'm writing a first draft my target is writing a chapter um and because i am I'm, I'm very much a planner so i um not only do i know the beginning middle and end of my books but i also know the beginning middle and end of every chapter so i generally speaking i know where i'm going with my chapter so i'll sit down and i'll i'll do a little plan for how the chapter is going to look or go and generally speaking i'll hit the target Sometimes I don't, but I, 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 you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, but generally speaking, I'll, I'll make sure I, I'll get to, uh, I, I can write a chapter within a, within my, my kind of daily work target. And then I think after that, I'll walk the dog, uh, have some lunch, walk the dog, and I'll do anything that's not sitting in front of a computer. Uh, I, I was talking to someone yesterday and, you know, writing, sorry, sitting down is, you know, possibly one of the worst things that you could do um, for your body. And, uh, you know, we're all of us sitting down too much. So I, I, as soon as I finish, I have to go and walk and do something else and try not to sit down. 
Um, and that's really important to me. But again, it, my, my, my typical day changes, as I said, depending on where I am with the book. So sometimes, you know, the very beginning of the book, I'm planning. Um, so I'm, I'm very much a planner. So I, I plan, as I said, I plan everything, uh, generally speaking. So I might be planning. And if I'm not planning or I've done that planning, I'll start writing and I'll get a first draft down. And then once I've got a first draft down, my wife will read it and she'll come back with lots of suggestions and lots of, uh, she's, she's always the first person who kind of reads my book. And then I'll do a second draft and then it will go to my uh, agent and editors and they, they might have a few notes as well. So I'll take that back and then there might be a third draft. So it's, it's, it's never just one thing. It all depends on where I am in the cycle. So where, are and, uh, where am I right now? Right yeah. now I, I have, I have had um, one of my best years ever. So I, uh, I started. I had an idea for a new book. I started. I started. It must be in January, and uh, I wrote an outline for it and planned it all out. Sent it to my agent and editor, and they both loved it. And. So I started working on it and I finished, I finished it and my wife read it and she loved it. And so we did it. Uh, I, I did some corrections and took her notes on. So I sent it to my agent and editors. And so that's where I am at the minute now. So probably I'm just waiting for notes for my agent and editor. But normally it takes me about 12 months door to door to kind of get a book in shape. And this one, I mean, we're only six, seven months in and, you know, it, it's in a much better better state than I, I thought it would be. So I'm really happy, actually. So, uh, yeah, all being well, I'll get some notes back and um, it, it should be another month, a month and a half uh, to turn it around. Fantastic. We'll look forward to that. All right. Thank you. What a pleasure Mike was to chat with. He's such a nice man. Uh, I heard him on Radio 4 the other day and all the listeners were phoning in to say what they'd like to donate to the museum. So uh, what about you, Hattie? Have you thought about what you might send in? That is a very uh, intriguing question, I think. I um, Thinking long and hard, I've got a lot of things in my house that is just kind of useless junk, but probably the most useless of all are the uh, <laughs> torn to pieces festival wristbands I used to collect when I went to festivals. And it is, I've kind of graduated from having them on my wrist for years at a time, which I think is actually quite disgusting. But um, they're now snipped away and kept in a little box somewhere, but they don't really serve any purpose or I never look at them, I, they just exist. So that would make a great donation to the Museum of, uh, of Ordinary People, perfect. <laughs> So now it's time to hear from Donna, who works as a library team assistant in a few different library branches in the Fairham and Gosport area. We'll be speaking to her about her recommended read, The Earth Spinner, and chatting about some other books that we've read recently. Hi, Donna, and welcome to the podcast. Right. Hi, thank you. Lovely to have you. So you're a library team assistant at quite a few of our libraries. Would you be able to tell us a bit about where you work and what they're like? Well, I work between five different libraries, two larger ones, Fairham and Gosport, 
and three smaller ones, Stubbington, Loxford and Porchester. Uh, the smaller libraries tend to be more friendly, I would say, and more face-to-face -face, and lots of questions are and more people would ask you to recommend books as well, I think, in the smaller ones. Yeah, so is that this will be an absolute breeze for you then? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and at the moment, we're right in the middle of our summer reading challenge, of course. So are all the libraries kind of ramped up and ready to go with that? Oh, definitely. Generally, it's been extremely busy, particularly when it first started. And we have seen our overflowing shelves going to half empty, three quarters empty in places where so many people have taken out books. So that's been really lovely to see. Yeah, I know there's usually really good supplies on BorrowBox of, uh, of children's books as well. So if anyone is stuck and can't get the book they really want, then definitely worth having a look at the uh, children's shelves on BorrowBox. Definitely. So, yes, on to our book recommendations. Donna, would you like to tell us a bit about the book you've chosen to talk about today and why it is you've chosen it? Right, I've chosen the book The Earth Spinner by Anuradha Roy. So two young girls in India, they are given rides to school by a rickshaw driver who also happens to be a potter. He, he's a Hindu and he falls in love with a Muslim woman. But what I liked about the idea of this was that it, it wasn't a huge theme throughout the book. He'd fallen in love. She happened to be a Muslim woman. And it was sort of overcoming some of the prejudices without making that the central theme of the book. I mean, there have been lots of books about um, the suffering and hardship that people have suffered through prejudice. And this book didn't try to do that. So he has a dream of a huge horse. And there's all fire and everything in it. And he then recreates the horse. And this sparks off some discontent and causes some problems within the village. So I think it would be a spoiler if I add more to that. But the, the, the young girl then ends up, uh, she, she works really hard at school. And she ends up getting a scholarship to go to England. And she comes across a little bit of prejudice. So there was lots to think about in the book. It really made you think about all the issues without detracting from the writing. And the reason I chose this was because I was asked to read some book for the Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize. And this was one of the many books I read and happened to be my favourite one. It, it seemed to tick all the boxes for me. It, was a, it, it did include adventure. And we, we were asked for it to go on a journey. And the, the people in the book went on different journeys. They went on physical journeys from India to England. And one of them went in other countries around the world. They also went on creative journeys as they were working with pottery. And that was a large part of the story. And they also went on a sort of discovering themselves journey as well. So it seemed to cover all those things. And another reason I chose this one was because I used to do some ceramics and it was lovely to actually read a book about it. Uh, not something I've really come across very often. However, I think if you had no interest in pottery, it still would have been a lovely book. And she wrote exceptionally well. It was almost like poetic. So those are all the reasons that I chose it. So tell me a bit more about that prize you're talking about. Um, so what was... The Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize, uh, they, it's all obviously adventure. It is sponsored by the um, Wilbur Smith Niso Foundation. 
and they ask librarians to read uh, a number of books to help them long and short list for the award. Uh, and again, adventure is probably not the category that I thought would be my favourite. But then I found out that the winner the previous year was Miss Benson's Beetle. And I had read that just by coincidence, and it was a lovely book, and I'd really enjoyed it. So I thought, oh, maybe there's going to be rather more to this than I at first thought. It sounds like a really interesting project to get involved in, and it is great when you're pushed to do something that's a bit outside your comfort zone when it comes to reading. So am I right in thinking, because I haven't read this yet, it sounds, it sounds really good, sounds absolutely up my street, but it kind of, am I right in thinking it shifts in narration style? It's got some bits seem to be like diary entries and then other bits are letters. And is that something that, that you thought worked well? I did because it was, I think it was pretty much all in the present tense, which I didn't think would appeal to me as much, but she wrote it so beautifully. It was simple yet poetic. It was an interesting style to write in. That's what I enjoyed most about it. And some of the images that she used, like she talks about her father, and I think he used to, he was interested in geology and talked about all the different rocks. And she said that even though they didn't really listen, they weren't interested, somehow that seeped into them and gave them memories of their father after he died later on. I really like the way it explores, from what I've read, what it means to be a creator and the creative force, but also looking at kind of old myths and looking at them in new ways. I think all of that sounds really fascinating. That's such a theme that comes out of a lot of the books that we discuss, actually, the kind of engaging with old myths and creating them into something new. It, it, it seems really popular. What else do you think, kind of along that vein, do you think listeners will really like about this book? Uh, well, I hope, obviously, the, the story of the book would uh, keep them engaged and just the way it's written, like I said, the way she, uh, you could almost visualise it as you're reading it. And she, she, um, she really evokes the places that the story is set in. Uh, and you, Again, you can just visualise it as you read it. So I, I found that really appealing. She brought it all to life, just as you would hope that an author would do. Well, I've not read anything by this writer before, so for me, this is a, a great recommendation. So we've been talking about The Earth Spinner uh, by Anuradha Roy. And uh, Hattie, have you got a, a reading suggestion for us? I do. So it's it's slightly on theme in that it kind of also follows the journeys kind of spiritually, emotionally, and, and in one case, kind of physically. And it also involves that kind of... Uh, cross-continental journey. So I've read China Room by Sanjeev Sahota, who has written this book and it's set across two timelines, which is another common theme on this podcast. We always see books that have, you know, your early 20th century to your late 20th century. Um, but that, that's what this book does. So the initial timeline follows the story of uh, Maha, who's a new bride in 1920s rural Punjab, a family of brothers is set to get married and she's one of the women who's been arranged to marry one of these three brothers. And the way that the family traditions and, and, and the, the household is set up is that really these new brides are treated as kind of maids, as, as servants, kind of really not very interactive in a sense of power in the household to the point where the only interactions they have with their husband are so limited that she doesn't know which of the brothers is hers. 
And it's kind of about her grasping with that power struggle in that timeline. And it's got an even even more specific, but maybe a bit uh, a bit of a tenuous link in that it's called the China Room, and uh, the Earth Spin is a book about pottery, so we've got that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the reason it's called the China Room is because these three now sisters are kind of confined to this China Room where they mostly uh, perform some kind of household duties, and then it comes to not quite present day, it comes to 1999, where we have another main character, a man who is living in England, facing lots of racial abuse. He's the son of an immigrant, and he's kind of become addicted to to drink and to drugs. And he decides to move back to live with his family in India, and try and overcome the, the problems that he has with substance abuse. And within that, he moves back to his family's ancestral home in rural Punjab and ends up discovering the China room and all and you know kind of uncovering the mystery of what happened there and I think it's it's a interesting book because again like you said with um, the earth spinner it doesn't quite uh, make some of these trials and tribulations the central focus of the book they're just kind of there they're parts of life you know but I think the themes that really come out in this one are the power struggles you know who holds power in families and society and and how do people resist that power I think that's a really key theme to it as well and then also that kind of sense of physical memory you know with the with a room that belongs to an old family member how that connects him to his present in the more modern timeline is, is a really interesting thing that the book handles quite well, I think. So Sanjeev Soto, I think he's um, Booker Prize nominated, potentially shortlisted, but I'll have to fact check that. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think it was really beautifully written, really powerful. And I would, I would definitely recommend it to, to listeners, yeah. Uh, and I also found The Earth has been a quite uplifting I think there are a lot of books at the moment that they just deal with problems and you want to sort of find solutions, issues, people moving on and, and getting on with things, which is a bit what, what we need at the moment, I think. Just that sort of resilience to move on and be positive and, you know, do what you can with the circumstances that you're under at that particular time. Um, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I think he's... Uh this is the second, this was shortlisted for Booker, but it's his, um, he's had another shortlisting. The Runaways was another of his that was shortlisted for the Booker. And, and I noticed that one of the authors that have been championing him is uh, Camilla Shamsi, who wrote uh, Home Fire, which I really loved. So I would say that is a, another book I would strongly recommend as well. I think Camilla Shanzi also did a positive review of The Earth Spinner. Oh, <laughs> full world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your book recommendation then, Kate? Well, I've decided to talk about a, a group of three books, which I'm afraid aren't really linked to any of the themes from uh, The Earth Spinner. I've recently read The Four Winds by Christian Hanna, which is all about the exodus from the Dust Bowl states to California in the 1930s depression. And it follows Elsa and her family who leave everything behind to make this terrible journey. 
and then they try <laughs> against the odds really to make a better life for themselves in California. I, at the time I was reading it, not only did I keep thinking how lucky we are that we are not in that situation that they were in 1930s Dust Bowl, you know, that we can, for the moment, still turn on a tap and get water. But I did keep thinking about Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, which, of course, tells exactly the same sort of story. But Steinbeck was writing in the 1930s at the time it was going on. So immediately I finished the, the Christian Hanna book, I moved straight on to the Steinbeck version which is an absolutely extraordinary written book. I've never read it before. Uh, and it's really hard when you read it to, to realize that it was written 80 years ago. It seems such a kind of modern novel and the, the style it's written in, it kind of reminded me of Irvin Welsh, the way that people's dialects are, are reproduced exactly on the page. And it had all this incredibly genuine, specific detail that really made you feel that you could see exactly what was going on in people's lives. And very sadly, the sort of themes it's talking about of these huge forced migrations uh, and uh, this extreme poverty and about the prejudice these, these people felt when they got to California is more relevant than ever today. I said I was going to talk about three books because I'm now fascinated having read those two to go back to the source material for both of these novels, which is a book called whose names are unknown. And this is a book that was written by a writer called Sonora Bab, who was a woman who worked with these displaced Dust Bowl migrants um, at the time. And Steinbeck read and used all her notes, I believe without her knowledge. Uh, and his version of the story was so successful that any plans they had to publish her book were completely abandoned. And it wasn't, it was 65 years later um, that her book finally went to, to print. So I feel now I've got to read that novel. I, I guess it's never going to be written as well as Steinbeck, but this is, uh, but it's interesting to really go back to that real source material. Uh, have you read any of those books, Donna? No, I've read uh, several Steinbeck ones, but not those particular ones. Yeah. Sounds interesting. I feel like, we're also in the middle of a heat wave right now and I think those kind of stories with like oppressive heat and drought is uh it always ramps up the tension yeah and it's so it's wonderfully told the Steinbeck verse in particular the huge detail he goes into about the decisions that somebody when they've got to leave their home suddenly what do I take with me uh, and people start thinking, well, what about that vase that our aunt bought for us at that county fair? No, no, that's ridiculous. Of course, I can't bring that. And they can just bring, the children can just bring one toy with them. And how do they choose that? Uh, and you know that across the world, people are having to make those sorts of decisions every day and how they feel a sort of sense of loss of identity as they leave everything behind and just abandon it uh, or burn it or sell it for pennies. Um, because nobody's going to give them any money for it. It's uh, it's absolutely an extraordinary story that you know is is so based in in people's lived experiences. So before we head off and and spend our afternoons in in some very um, deep heat, are there any other books or any other sort of library services that you'd like to give a special mention to, Donna? Books, like I said, I enjoyed Miss Benson's Beautiful. The Librarian, of course, I had to read that one when I started this job. And that was a pleasant surprise because I, I thought it was going to be a lighter book than it was. And it, it was beautifully written. So that, that was a lovely book. And The Plant Hunters, which was another one I read. That's by T.G. Mogford. 
that was another one I read for the Royal Smith Adventure Prize. The Vacation, which surprised me, uh, by John Mars, and that that was another interesting one. And finally, another one, Tides by Sarah Freeman. Those are some that I particularly enjoyed. <laughs> and I nearly talked about The Citadel today, but I thought that was a very well-known book, and I, th I thought people would know that one already. So, but that's one of my favourites as well. Oh, fantastic. Well, maybe we'll get you back on to talk about that one another time. It's always great to have a mixture of old and new, and I love a short book every so often. It's quite nice to to read one that you can get immersed in just for a day or so. Thank you very much for joining us, Donna. And we definitely will really look forward to speaking to you again soon when we hope to get another selection of some great recommendations. We'll make sure that we put the books that you've, that list of books that you recommended into our show notes so that anyone who wants to look them up has got links. Lovely, right. Thank you very much for speaking to me. What a lovely guest to have and some fantastic book options too. The Earth Spinner is definitely going on my reading list. Yeah, I'll be working through some of her other recommendations as well. It's nice that she picked out The Librarian, which is a book that we discussed uh, in an earlier podcast episode. Um, again, we can put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah, how could we not? It's Love Your Library. <laughs> and before we go, we've just got time to tell you about the Hampshire Library Summer Reading Challenge, which we did mention a little bit earlier in, in the episode when we spoke to Donna. Uh, during the summer holidays, if you're not already aware, children across Hampshire are being challenged to read or listen to six books of their choice. And for this great achievement, they'll get a certificate and a medal to display with pride. It's a fantastic way to keep children's literacy skills up during the summer when they're not at school, as well as providing parents with a free activity to keep kids busy. Find out more about this year's challenge on the Kids Zone area of our website. You'll find a link to that in our show notes as well. And while you're there, have a browse of some of the activity sheets and resources too. We've got jokes, puzzles, spot the difference, dot to dots, all kind of things to keep your kids busy over the summer holidays. Well, that's about everything from us. Thanks once again to Mike Gale for chatting with us and to Donna for her book recommendations. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac.